The following message is from the audio teaching library of the Briarwood Pulpit, a ministry of the Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. Our speaker is Dr. Harry Reeder, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church. It is our hope and prayer that this message will equip and encourage you in your walk with Christ, and as a result, you will be used by our Lord as an instrument of change to further His kingdom and bring honor and glory to the name of Christ. Here now is our pastor teacher, Harry Reeder. Genesis chapter 1. Look with me. We're going to look at a couple of texts as we continue uh, on the sanctity of gender and sexuality. Uh, this is our third sermon on it, and let me go ahead and alert you. There is at least two more. Uh, Genesis chapter 1. I, I want to continue to lay out this matter of gender and sexuality. I want to lay this out for us um, just in terms of the full foundation of it, and then I'd like to spend at least one Sunday night on biblical masculinity and biblical femininity, but I believe I need to handle the issue of gender, male and female, and sexuality of male and female in terms of the Word of God in a general sense and hopefully somewhat of a comprehensive sense. Uh, a social scientist by the name of Dr. Shiver, who's lost her job, by the way, she's not a, at least I don't think she is, a professing Christian, but she is a honest uh, student and an honest professor, an honest author, and an honest teacher. And she was so overwhelmed with this gender confusion. Now, let me, let me distinguish something here. There is an adolescent issue called gender dysphoria that affects really less than 1%. Uh, you could maybe find studies that say it's a little over 2% of children growing up. And of that 1% or 2%, over 85% over would, um, uh, would be female uh, in terms of the, quote, gender confusion. It usually arises somewhere around the age 2 or 3. Um, over half of the issues are settled by age 7 and the rest by the completion of adolescence, except for about um, somewhere around 5 to 7% uh, of that which is left. But what struck her as she began to hear these reports coming in and did her study, that in some European country, countries, in the last seven years, the number of reported cases of, quote, gender dysphoria uh, now uh, that works under the issue of gender selection has now risen in some nations over 1,400%. You know, I, I try not to sensationalize uh, when I come to trying to deal with topical expository issues from the scriptures, and, um, <clears throat> but I, I keep pleading with people that these foundational issues are crucial in society. But if, if you just take that on, and by the way, in America, it is somewhere around 1,400 percent. 
the, um, if, you, if you begin to see this and what's happening, um, it's kind of like when I look at the statistics of men engaged in pornography and I see what they are and if there's any, re- any sense of accuracy to them, then that tells me I've got issues as a pastor I need to assist men in in the church. Well, if we've got these kind of statistics out there, all you have to do is come and talk with our youth uh, pastor, uh, Jay Shaw. And he will tell you in the last five years the rising issues, how much of this he is dealing with now that he never dealt with before. So there are two things. Number one is to understand why that's happening. And number two, which I'm not going to try to deal with tonight, But number two is for God's people to be equipped to respond to it when it happens. With graciousness, but with clarity from God's word. And that's why these things are so important. And if I were a parent, I would certainly want to know. I would certainly want to be prepared. Because our children in many cases are in educational systems that are actually part of the exacerbation of this issue. And counselors who, instead of meeting a three-year-old going through the what we would have all, always called an, a, um, a normal uh, working through the issue of gender uh, from a two- to a five-year-old, now begins to, even before they get to junior high, start recommending Chemical treatments, most, one most used is called Lupin, and if that sounds familiar, that's, what, that's the chemical that is used for chemical castration of sex offenders, and that's used to, quote, unquote, repress puberty until the adolescent can make a decision what gender they want to be. And the unbelievable effects of this chemical abuse of a child, much of which is irreversible. I can't even describe to you the medical things that happened in terms of the sexual uh, biology of an individual that takes this. It would just be too uh, titillating in descriptions. I just can't even tell you what it does. But that's what's happening in our society. Now, why is this happening? Is it just a matter of information? No, it's a matter of rebellion. This is not new. There's an amazing study that is out there on paganism from the second millennium BC uh, up through the ninth millennium AD. And that particular study shows how two Two dynamics of man's rebellion against God are grasped. One is pagan spirituality, which is always driving to androgyny, and Eastern spirituality. Eastern spirituality that has worked right into our society so that we have rampaging rampaging Buddhism and Hinduism, uh, usually coming in through such things as exercise regimens, And then we have uh, not only that, but we have uh, modern-day Gnosticism, as my dear friend Peter Jones calls, the evil empire strikes back. And those things are at work. 
Well, as I said, tonight is not my effort to go through those things as to why it's happening and all of the things from which it is happening and all the venues through which this LGBTQ and particularly the focus is on transgenderism itself, why it is happening in our society, except merely to tell you it is the response of sinful man unfettered by either redeeming grace or common grace, unfettered, always strikes out at God from the creation by striking out at all of the binary that God has put in creation. There is God, Romans 1 tells us, that, with, that man in his sinfulness refuses to give glory to God as creator, but will worship and serve the creation and give the creation and the creature the status of deity. So to deny God who is established creation, that's a binary, the creator and the creation, then the way you attack God, because you can't get your hands on him, is to attack the binary that he has put into creation. And it fills the pages of Scripture in the week of creation, land and sea and light and darkness, and most profoundly, male and female. So how is it that we need to understand a biblical view of gender and sexuality? Well, I don't have time, and although I wished I could because this is all so closely connected to go back over the previous two sermons, but I do have one more that I would like to give you in these three sermons that lay the groundwork, kind of a trilogy of groundwork on gender and sexuality, but I want to go back to our two basic texts once again. Would you look with me, first of all, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. See the binary? The earth was without form and void. That's tohu, bohu, unformed and unfilled. Another binary in the initial act of creation. And darkness was over the face of of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. I have often said, let me just stop here just for a moment. I have often said that there is no other book under attack more than Genesis, and you can know the importance of something when you see the enemy focus upon it to attack it and to isolate the attack upon it. And I've even gone further as to say that the, in the book of Genesis, that which is most under attack in the book of Genesis is the first 11 chapters in the book of Genesis. But I think Dr. Johnny Gibson, whom I've quoted a number of times in this series and will continue to quote from him, uh, is right when he says he certainly would affirm that Genesis, the most attacked book and the most hated book in the Bible, from the world of unbelief. And 1 through 11 would be a focal area. But he would go so far to say, and he has convinced me over these last couple of months in my preparation, that the one verse that is hated the most is Genesis 1-1. It affirms a God who is eternal and self-existent. There is no explanation of where God comes from because God doesn't come from. Everything comes from God. 
He is the creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So not only do we have space, time, and matter, but energy. All of the, all of the issues of life are established in that verse. Space, time, matter, and energy. And as space, time, matter, and energy are established, I think, again, Mr. Gibson is right. There is a real sense that the rest of your Bible, Genesis 1-2, through Revelation chapter 22, and the very last verse, is a commentary on Genesis 1-1. It is the it is the uh, distillation, the summation, the explanation, and the exposition of Genesis 1-1. God, in the beginning, created the heavens and the earth. God is the one who came to form it and to fill it. Now comes the explanation in Genesis 1-2. Now, we have already looked at the sanctity of divine revelation, that we are people who are Christians and we develop our life view and our life based upon the Word of God, divine revelation. It has two parts, general revelation, that is, that which is available to everybody as the creation speaks of God to its inhabitants. Then there is special revelation, the Word of God. Both are infallible and inerrant, and both are misinterpreted. Scientists, of course, general revelation, and preachers and teachers and false teachers, special revelation. But the fact is, is that we are people who are dependent upon the Spirit of God who, who affirms the majesty of God through divine revelation and in special revelation. Then when you've come up with the understanding of the role of the Word of God, now you're in position to understand the God of the Word and the sanctity of God is what we looked at next. Now we're ready to look at the, uh, the way that God created, the sanctity of creation, and how the week of creation sets the profile and the pattern for the week of redemption when Christ saves us from our sins and the week that, it, that enters us into the summation of all things, into a new heavens and a new earth. Now we've come to another sanctity, and that is the sanctity of gender and the sanctity of sexuality. Having seen, I'm sorry, the sanctity of man, and now the sanctity of man, gender, and sexuality. So we are at this fifth foundation, this fifth sanctity of, of, um, of man, and therefore there are a couple of texts that are crucial that we have to keep in front of us. So go with me now to Genesis 1.26. Genesis 1.26. Then God said, let us make man in our image 
After our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heaven, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them, and God blessed them. And God said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant-yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps upon the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and there was evening, and there was morning the sixth day. Now, if you would, go over to Genesis chapter 2, and look with me, if you would, down to, um, I'll just pick up at uh, verse uh, 15. The Lord God took the man that has been made, man, that's male, and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him, or a suitable helper, or a fit completer for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit, a suitable completer for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up the place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. So here we have gender, male and female, and apart from sin, sexuality that is shameless, and it exists. Now, this text of Genesis 1 is constantly uh, affirmed by the prophets and the writers of the Old Testament who quote from it and who live and develop theology from its foundations. And then we find that it is affirmed in the New Testament. Paul quotes from it. Peter quotes from it. Most notably, interestingly, is a parallel in the New Testament to what I have just read and what we have studied these past weeks in this creation week. 
Would you keep your finger there at Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and would you turn with me to the New Testament, to the Gospel of John and chapter 1. John 1. John chapter 1, and when you arrive, you will look at that prologue to John 1, and you will notice a significant parallel, won't you? What you'd simply have is greater detail. In the beginning, John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. So here we see this title of Christ, who is the Word, and this title of Christ, who is the Word, affirmed as being with God, that would be the Father and the Holy Spirit, already accommodated in Genesis 1, let us Well, now you're getting the insight, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that there was God the Father, God the Spirit, and Christ, the the Word was with God, and Christ the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Now we see specifically that as the Father creates, He creates through the Son. And we've already been told in Genesis that the Spirit of God will order what is being formed and filled as he moves upon the face of the deep. So you see the doctrine of the Trinity at work within creation. And so in him, that is Christ, was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. For everyone who always says to me, how can you have light in the first three days, but the sun isn't created until the fourth day? And I always tell them because God's telling you up front, he's not dependent upon the sun to give the light. He is the light. He establishes the light. And what he gives the sun and the moon and the stars for is governing the light. He is not dependent upon it for the light. He is the one who gives light, not only spiritual light, but also the physical light that exists. But here again, you see a compatible and a comparable uh, declaration of creation by God. And therefore, God is getting the point across to us. Why is there a creation? Because there's a creator. Who tells us? The purpose of the creation, the order of the creation, the definitions of the creation, the one who names everything in the creation with authority over it. And on the sixth day, he created, the creator created man, and he established him as male and as female, and so God has so established There is a creation because there's a creator. There is your binary. There is your binary that is under assault in man's rebellion against God. And as it is under assault in man's rebellion against God, your answer is, there is not only is there a binary, creation and creator, there was a time when there was no binary, there was only God. He is the creator. And because he is the creator, he defines, he he originates everything, he orders everything, 
He names everything, thus he defines everything, and he is responsible over everything, and everything is responsible to him. And then isn't it interesting that part of the creation that he makes man, male and female, to bear his image, that is the image of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that here is that God now builds a binary in that which images him. So that he calls man, male and female, within a covenant of marriage, one. That they are one in union before him and both are necessary to image him. Why? Because God exists as one in three persons. There is one with multiplicity, and that which is made in his image is one with multiplicity. And there is man, male, and there is man, female. You will also notice that when he originates man, he originates man, male, and female from that which he has already originated, ex nihilo. God spoke and brought everything into existence. Then, as God made man, he took that which was already in existence, the dust of the ground, and by the mediated creation of Adam, he makes man male and breathes into him the breath of life, because in him is life, and therefore life by him is put in Adam. And then Adam is, and then Adam, as he uh, begins to accomplish what he is ordered to do. He is ordered to have dominion over the earth. He is ordered to subdue the, uh, subdue the earth. He is ordered to rule over the creation. And he is ordered to be fruitful and multiply. And as Adam, through whom God is naming all, everything, Adam names the animals, there is not found a suitable helper. And so what does God do? God causes the sleep to come upon Adam, and from the side of Adam brings forth man-female. You have man-male and man-female. These both are necessary to image God. Now, he gave you the broad stroke in Genesis 1.26. Now he gives you what is happening in the context of the sixth day in Genesis chapter 2. What you must see and what you cannot miss is that what you must see and cannot miss, that when God makes man, it is with purpose. And when God makes man, he he draws from that which is consistent with the purpose. He makes man to subdue the earth, to rule over the creatures of the earth, and to be fruitful and and fill up the earth. So what does he make man from? The dust of the ground of the earth. Yet he is... He is not able to do this alone. He saw that man was alone and it was not good for the man to be alone. That's not a statement of psychology. That is not a statement of relational relational, uh, vacuum. That is a statement of vocation. What he has been called to do, his God-given vocation, he is unable to do alone. He is unable to subdue the earth, he is unable to rule over the creatures, and none of the creatures, as he names them, 
on behalf of God consistently. And please remember, when something is named, when something is named, there's four things you remember. To name something is to have authority over it. To name something is to have authority over it. This morning, you saw the baptisms and the words that came from my mouth is, Father, name your child. Why? Because God has delegated that authority to the family. And therefore, the father names the child. Then you name the child. When you name the child, you are giving definition. It's not just, we say, we think we named the animals cat, dog, rat, you know, just kind of threw some names so we'd know who they are and, and be able to call them. No, no. He was defining them. But there was not one that fit the definition of suitable helpmate. Number three, when you name something, you take responsibility for it. And number four, when you name something, then before God, whom you are serving in naming that something, you will give an account for it. I'll give an account as a father. Uh, uh, I'll give an account as a father for my children. I've named them. I'll give an account for my relationship with Cindy as I gave her my name when we were married. So that when we follow those principles, then we understand naming is something that has significance to it. So what are some things that I want you to put down and have in place from our first, uh, uh, to go with what we have looked at in our first two um, studies in this matter of gender and uh, sexuality? Uh, the first, I want to give you seven things to jot down tonight. And here's the first one. The first one is this. We've already covered it somewhat. That God made man in his image, male and female. He made man binary to reflect the binary of the creator and the creature and the creation. And to reflect the diversity, uh, to reflect the multiplicity of the trinity in terms of the multiplicity of man, male and female. In other words, when he made man, male and female, he made man one. The two shall be one. So there's unity. But there's not only unity, there is particularity. The male and the female are different. Dare I use the word diversity? Dare I use the word distinctiveness? They are not, so we do away with an egalitarian view. Equality is not interchangeability. There is equality because both are necessary to properly image God. But there is distinctiveness in their creation. They are different. That doesn't mean superior or inferior. That means different. They stand equal before God, they stand as one before God, and they stand with diversity. God didn't say, Adam can't get this done, I'll give him another man. He says, I will give for him a suitable helper, a fit helper who brings her own honor, her own dignity as female to be joined to the dignity 
that Adam has as male. Number two, as you see how man is made, male and female, there are some clear dynamics that have to be affirmed in their distinctives. Here you say they are different. They are. They are distinctive. How? Well, I simply look at the creation account of man, male and female. What are some of the first things that you see? God names man, male and female. But when you get to Genesis 2, you see that God names man, male and female, and he uses male, whom he has named, Adam, and he uses Adam to name Eve. It is Adam that names Eve, delegated authority from God for which he is accountable. He will have to shepherd. He is called to shepherd her, be accountable for her. He names her. He's responsible for her. And he answers to God who delegated that authority to him. This is now woman. Equality. She is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Difference. She shall be called woman. Isha. Reflection of ish. Ish is man. Isha is woman. Reflection of. So there is unity and diversity. As he names her faithfully delegated to do so by God and consistent. Just as he has named the animals rightly, he names Eve rightly. And just as he is taken from the dust of the ground for his task, she is taken from his side for her task, which is his suitable, fitted helper to come alongside of him. Number two, number two, He has delegated authority. He has delegated authority and responsibility over Eve. Number three, he is to give his name to Eve, even as he names her. He is responsible for her. He is a steward of her and their role together to fill the earth, to subdue the earth, to rule over the creation. And he is accountable for her. So let me take just a moment and get out of, um, and get to something that I'll actually cover more in a subsequent study, but it's appropriate here. So Adam, in his delegated authority, names her. He's responsible for her. He is a steward of her. He is accountable for her. And then Eve sins. She takes the fruit. And what does Adam do? He participates in the sin, not only by taking the fruit, but also the sins of omission that surround this sin. He was created to care for her, to be responsible for her. Then why was he silent when a serpent is talking? 
For as he had named the animals, there were none that fit that description. No serpents talked. Why did he not speak when the serpent misquoted the word of God? Why did he not, when God came in the garden, why did he not say, I have sinned. Don't take her. Take me. There will be a second Adam who on his behalf of his bride will say, don't take her. At the cross, take me for her. And why did he not crush the head of the serpent in its deceit? There will be a second Adam who will. Here he had stewardship, here he had responsibility, and here he abdicated. But can I ask y'all a question? Who initiated the sin by actually taking the forbidden fruit? And by the way, please don't say apple. We have no idea. Could have been a kumquat. We don't call it Eve's sin. We do say Eve first sinned. But it is called Adam's sin. Headship is responsibility and accountability. We don't say by a woman sin entered into the world, but by a man sin entered into the world and death. There is accountability that comes to him. So here you see Adam's headship, that Adam has a headship responsibility over Eve that God holds him accountable for even when he abdicates it. Secondly, The man was made to initiate. When you look at gender, male, man is made to initiate. Does that mean women cannot initiate? No, no, that's not what it means. But it's looking at the basic role of man, male and female. The man is to initiate. I I was, um, I will not say which one of my uh, daughters or son, my children that I was talking through, and they were asking. We had a kind of a thing uh, is that um, um, when my daughters were growing up, now you may disagree with this, that's all right, but uh, they survived it. Uh, the, when the date was asked, the, the guy that wanted to date my daughters had to ask me first. And it wasn't so much I was trying to control things. <laughs> it was, um, I was really... Well, let me say it in a certain sense, I was trying to control some things, uh, but sanctified fatherhood, I hope. But what I really wanted to do was take the pressure off of them. I just say, <laughs> if they said, I just told them, nope, you can't. And uh, so that just took the pressure off of them. And we would go through that process and we would uh, take the time to do that. But let me tell you what. I told my daughters they don't do. I understand Sadie Hawkins dances. I'm not, I'm not on a thing here. I just basically, you receive their initiation. 
He is to initiate to you. And if he can't, you really do not want to spend any courtship time with him. That means he won't in life. And that means you'll be put in a position that will ultimately bring the destruction of a relationship. Well, does that mean they can't spend? No, you can go and be friends all you want to. You don't have to initiate as a friend. But in that relationship, you initiate. The man is called to headship in the family and in the church. He initiates and he is to provide. He has, why do I say that? Because Adam was created first. I'm just following the lead of the apostle Paul. When he talks about why only qualified men are to lead in the ordained offices, he says two things. Eve was the one first deceived when she was outside of Adam's headship. And secondly, when functioning outside of Adam's headship, also due to his abdication. And secondly, Adam was first created. He was made not only to initiate, he was made to provide, and finally he was made to protect. So when you begin to stop and think through what, is, what begins to identify masculine, the masculine gender, well, headship in relationships. Number two, initiation. Number three, provision. And number four, protection. That's what he is called to accomplish. Now, again, I want to say very quickly, do women provide? Yes. My goodness, go read the Proverbs 31 woman. Uh, I'm, 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 I'm sure Eve was engaged in subduing the earth. But the man is responsible for the provision. The man is responsible for the protection. Can a woman protect? Oh, my goodness, I've seen that. One of these days when I have some time, sit down with me and talk to my kids, and they'll tell you about the time we were at the Orange Bowl parade, and a gang attacked uh, this guy, and I intervened uh, in this gang. I told my wife, I said, go get in the car, honey, lock the doors, and put the kids in there, and I don't care what happens to me, do not get out of that car. Well, that lasted about 10 minutes. As I was in the midst of this thing, trying to respond to it. I looked up and there comes my wife. Now, she had locked the kids in the car and then she came down and somewhere she picked up a fallen, we're in Miami, she picked up a fallen palm fond and she's waving it. Get away from him. Get away from him. My wife was ready to take on 33 uh, guys in a gang, at least that many, with a palm fond. So don't tell me a woman can't protect things. I am fully aware that she can and will and moves rapidly to do so, but I'm responsible. <laughs> so I'm, go- I'm going to get in trouble. Listen, but I'm going to go ahead. Why not get in trouble? I mean, why not? I'm pretty close to, I guess I can work toward retirement age and get fired. But um, uh, folks, I certainly believe that the male and the female can get involved in all kinds of industries. And, um, and I am not sure how all this works out uh, in, in outside of the family and the church. But I know one thing. I don't think a country lasts long when it sends its wives and daughters to protect them against the enemy in combat. I can't imagine somebody breaking into, the, into my house and me saying to Cindy, 
go check it. Now, let me tell you, she probably would. But I'm responsible. God made Adam first for headship, for initiation, for provision, and for protection. Is there a unified effort in these things? Yes. But he's responsible, and God held him responsible when the first sin came. Secondly, but what about the woman? Well, let me try to draw out from creation some of the dynamics of the female gender. Number one, she proceeded from the man. She proceeded from the man as a completer. She becomes the completer of the man so that the two work together. That there is a dynamic of male and female relationships when things are getting done that both bring something unique. They are not, we do not embrace egalitarianism that men and women are interchangeable. Are there overlaps? Absolutely. But we are different. And that means a man brings something to it and a woman brings something to it. I mean, you even see it when we start developing. I was just doing a study for this, and I found out, I think I've got it right. If I get it wrong, I'm sure somebody's going to correct me. I got corrected on three things this morning in the lobby, so I'm sure you'll correct me. Uh, But if I'm not mistaken, I mean, I know this part is true, that when a um, um, from the birth, from the embryo status all the way up to age 14, the man's brain, a boy's brain, does not develop with balance. I don't know which side it is. I think it's the left side develops rapidly and the right side doesn't, if I'm not mistaken. Or maybe it's the other way around. I don't know what. But let me explain this. Let me explain it this way. This explains why the famous last words of young boys in the state of Alabama is, Bubba, watch this. There are things we don't think about that later on we get mature and start thinking about. But early on, we don't. So there is difference between us. That's not good and bad. That's the difference that God builds into us as to how we are to function. And the woman has been taken from the man and brings her life comes forth from him to fit alongside of him. Rightly acknowledge is that she doesn't come from his head. She's not over him and she doesn't come from his feet. She's not under him. She comes from his side. She is a completer with him. Now, pastor, I know some of you said, pastor, what about singleness? I am glad you asked. And I promise you, I'm going to deal with that in this series. I promise you. But I need to work from the creation, not from the effects of sin, whereby singleness now exists for various reasons. I did not say singleness is sin. What I said was, because of sin, there are varying death rates, there are varying dynamics that happen, and when men die and women die, go check when we die. We are, I think it's 76 or something, and women at about 80-something, although y'all are closing the gap right now. But, but that's what that, there's a difference that's there. And in terms of how men develop, and in adolescence, I understand. So I'm not dealing with singleness at the moment. What I'm dealing with was the, the pristine dynamic of creation. And what is God revealing to us 
from the origin of man and woman and the ordering of man and woman. The next thing you need to see about the woman is she is given the calling of a helpmate, a helper. That's why I do not like the term housewife. You don't marry a house. That's why I, I don't believe that that's a proper term that should, that's used. I believe the woman in her work works in concert, and as she works in concert, she is now given an extraordinary privilege to be called a helper as she and as the female and the male are made in the image of God. Do you remember right before Jesus went to heaven in John chapter 14 and John chapter 16? And he said, I must go away so that I can send to you. Does anyone remember what he said? I, can, I must go away. It's better for you that I go away. For if I go away, I will send to you almost the other helper. You see, Christ and the Spirit, helper is their name. And the female bears that name. The name of the Savior, helper, and the name of the Spirit, the other helper. Let me give you another thing, is that the, while the man initiates, the woman receives. All you have to do is go back to this act of creation, not only in subduing the earth, not only in ruling the creation, but they're supposed to be what? They are supposed to what? To be fruitful and multiply. And you can't do it alone. So he brings them together. And as he brings them together and makes them one, the man initiates and produces and gives seed. And the woman is both drawn to and created to receive the seed. The man then provides and protects, and the woman then nurtures the seed as the man cherishes the woman. So you see this dynamic of receiver along with the dynamic of the man as the initiator in accomplishing our vocation. And then you have, of course, the fact that, as I just said, the woman nurtures and develops while the man cherishes and encourages. Let me give you, so, let me give you a third thing, um, is that Genesis, I've already mentioned this, so I'm just going to say it again. Genesis is affirmed in the Old Testament. It is affirmed in the New Testament, this account. It is referred to not only by the prophets, not only by the apostles, but Christ also to this text and this issue says, have you not heard from the beginning God made them male and female? Number four, these are issues of ontology or being and teleology of purpose, but we are at ground zero. May I ask you a question? Do you believe we need men who understand what it means to be a Christian citizen in this nation. Do you believe we need that today? I think we desperately need it. 
What we are watching is the effeminization of men and the masculinization of women. We desperately need men who understand what it means to be a man in the public square, a gentle man. And that's my clue for the next sermon on masculinity. But you don't get Christian citizens, men as Christian citizens, without men who understand what it means to be a Christian father. And you can't have a Christian father without a man that understands what it means to be a Christian husband. And you can't have a Christian husband without a man that understands what it means to be a man of God and for God. And a man that understands why and how God made him. The issue to deal with toxic masculinity is to bring biblical masculinity so that men of God become Christian husbands, Christian fathers, Christian citizens, and bring what God has uniquely gifted them to do in this world. And the same dynamic ontology being of a woman who becomes a woman of God, who understands what it means to be a woman for God. And if in God's providence and through his providence, as she has a God's, God's gift of a man who leaves his father and mother to cleave to her, then she understands as a woman of God what it means to be a Christian wife and a Christian mother and a Christian woman in this world, such as is described most challengingly in Proverbs 31. But it begins with understanding in creation who I am as a man and who you might be as a woman and then what it means to be saved by God's grace as a man and as a woman. So, I didn't make it to the end. I've got one minute left, and I didn't make it to the end. So let me tell you where we will be in the next, uh, the next one. Pastor. Here's where I was ready to go, and I didn't get there. I'm sorry. But here's where I was ready to take you. Galatians chapter 3. Pastor, get with the times. Get with the Scripture, Pastor. The Bible says in Christ... There is neither Jew nor Greek, bond or free. There is neither male nor female. Get with it, Pastor. The Bible doesn't leave us in this so-called created myth of male and female in Jesus. We've been liberated from that. There's neither Jew nor Greek or bond nor free or male nor female. Don't you want to get with it? I love to get with it. So we'll get with it in Galatians 3 next Sunday night. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the time we could be together in your word. Thank you for the Lord Jesus, our Redeemer, that we can serve him, love him, and follow him. God, I thank you so much for my brothers and sisters and their patience as I try to work my way through this. Uh, accurately and biblically, not overstepping nor falling short of what your word says and what you are communicating to us and what consistently is unfolded in the scripture. So would you give us faithfulness? Father, give us perseverance as we chart this course 
and come to understand it. In Jesus' name, amen. You have been listening to a message by Harry Reader, Senior Pastor of Briarwood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham, Alabama. For more information on the resources available through Briarwood Presbyterian Church, or for more information on the teaching ministry of Pastor Reader, visit us at briarwood.org or call 205-776-5200.